Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. And I, I want to again reiterate this coming weekend, I'm really excited about having all these mission partners um, in our church. It's been um, many years in the making. We were originally supposed to do this back in 2020, but of course COVID hit and we weren't able to do that. So um, we're excited about having all of our, all of our friends back for a, for a weekend of missions. It'll be great. Well, back in 2013, a man named William Rockefeller made news headlines when a train was barreling down the tracks in the Bronx, New York at 82 miles an hour, pretty fast. He killed four passengers and 75 were injured. Now, why did the train crash? Because William Rockefeller fell asleep on the job and he lost control. Some of the world's worst disasters can be traced back to somebody falling asleep on the job. The nuclear explosion in Chernobyl, Ukraine, was attributed to operators working 13 hours straight fell asleep on the job. Three Mile Island incident in Pennsylvania in 1979 was attributed to workforce that was asleep on the job. Some reports have linked the space shuttle Challenger, the explosion in 1986 to NASA officials coming to work sleep deprived on that day. And then the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989 was attributed to a third mate falling asleep at the wheel. Falling asleep on the job can be kind of a nuisance if you have a job like some of us, but if you're driving a train or you're sending astronauts up into space or you've got these oil tankers, if you fall asleep on the job, things can become catastrophic. I don't know if you know about a man named Randy Gardner. He holds the world record for staying awake the longest without any sleep. So 11 days. He stayed awake 11 days. This was, and this was that with, without any stimulants or caffeine or anything. This was actually back in 1964. He was a student at a high school in San Diego, California. And he underwent this scientific study through researchers at Stanford University to see how long a person could go without sleep. And basically, he went for 11 days. Now, you cannot be physically awake forever. And there are dangers to falling asleep on the job. And the reason I bring this up is because on numerous occasions, Jesus tells us, stay awake. Making sure you're awake this morning. <laughs> stay alert. Keep your eyes open. Now, over the past few weeks, we have been looking at this final speech, this final discourse that Jesus gives publicly in the temple and he's talking about the destruction of the temple in the year A.D. 70, but he also is talking about his second coming. And we've spent the past 
two weeks in this and we come to the conclusion. So let's just recap. What has Jesus been saying so far in this final speech in the temple just days before he's crucified? Well, first he says there's always going to be internal pressures to the church through false teaching. Therefore, we need to be not deceived. Don't go after false teachers. Be aware of the internal pressures that come from false teachers. Secondly, there will always be external pressures that come upon the church through persecution. Therefore, be bold in our witness. Remain steadfast in the midst of persecution. Third, and we looked at this last week, God gives people time to repent before he brings judgment. The destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was a harbinger, was a, a, a precursor to what the final judgment was going to look like. And God waited. He's, he waited many years before he finally brought judgment. And then the, the, the fourth thing, and, the, and this was the last thing we looked at last week, is that the return of Christ should cause us great joy, not great fear. So what's Jesus' main point up to this, uh, uh, up to this point in his, in his sermon? It's very simple. Jesus will return, and he will bring both judgment and salvation. When Jesus comes back, it'll be salvation for his people. When he comes back, it will be judgment for those that are not his people. But Jesus has not finished yet. He's not done with his teaching. He has some final truths to press home for us. So let's read together the, the conclusion of this long chapter, chapter 21. And let's pick up in verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. And as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus brings this message to a conclusion. And I want us to look at two primary truths that Jesus addresses. These two truths are basically getting to the heart of what it means to be ready for the second coming. How do you get ready? How do you wait? We don't know when he's coming back. We know he is coming back, but how do you wait? How are you ready? How do you prepare yourselves? Titus 2.13 says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The return of Christ is our blessed hope. Yet, how do you wait for its coming? Is there a lot of feedback out there? Can you turn it? Are you guys hearing the feedback? Is it not out there? Maybe it's just up here. Are you guys cool? Some of you are like, no, we're not cool. 
I'm just going to keep going. All right. So how do you prepare for that final day? So here's the first truth that Jesus presses home for us in this passage of Scripture, and this is in verses 29 through 33. Truth number one, Jesus' words can always be trusted. Now Jesus begins with the parable, and then he ends with the promise. He tells the parable of the fig tree. And it's a very easy parable to understand. Basically, you understand this when you look out at nature. You know that when the trees get barren and they start to bud in the springtime, summer's coming when the trees begin to bud. And that's the way it was in ancient Israel. The fig tree would lose its leaves in winter, and then only in late spring would it begin to bud, showing that summer was approaching. And Jesus says, when you see these signs budding on the scene, like you see the fig tree budding its leaves, you know these things are near. Now, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And he's also talking about his second coming, which makes this kind of confusing because verse 32 has caused a lot of confusion over the years. And there's many interpretations. Actually, if you go look at a commentary, there's like eight or nine different interpretations of how to understand verse 32. I'll give you the two predominant interpretations. Let's just read verse 32 and ask the question. Verse 32 says, truly I say, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. What does he mean, this generation will not pass away? Well, let me give you the two predominant interpretations of how scholars and pastors and teachers have understood these, these passages. And I'm not going to be dogmatic because there's not been a general consensus in church history. The oldest and probably most supported understanding, and this goes back to the Reformers, and a lot of modern scholarship holds to it too. It's the, it's the predominant view. Jesus is referring to that present generation. Those individual Jewish people in that generation that would see with their own eyes about 37 to 40 years later the actual destruction of Jerusalem. That present generation would not pass away until the destruction of the temple. But there's another interpretation. And this is more of a newer interpretation and not as many scholars hold to it, but I think it holds merit. That generation is not necessarily addressing those that were particularly alive at the time, but the word generation means the Jewish people. In other words, the, the second interpretation says, when Jesus comes back, there's still going to be Jewish people on the earth. There's going to be a remnant of Jews. There's going to be those that are going to be saved during the end times. And, and so the Bible does teach that, that there are, the Jewish people, have, 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 they've tried to exterminate the Jewish people off the face of the earth. And so this interpretation says, no, they're not going to be exterminated. There will be Jewish people there at the end, and there will be many who will come to faith in Christ. I, I think you can take both of those as equal merit. But I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees and not understand Jesus' point. His point is, is that there's going to be signs that are going to be pointing to the end. But the most important thing is what he says in this promise that he gives in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The entire earth will be destroyed by fire, and everything will be destroyed on that final day. But standing firm to the end are Jesus' words. This is how we opened up our worship service this morning from 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. 
All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers, flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So it's not a matter as if Jesus' word is going to last forever. It is. That's not the issue. The issue for you and me is, okay, how do we respond to that? Are you going to live according to his word? Are you going to submit to His Word? Are you going to believe all of His words? All of His promises? Jesus predicted the end times. He predicted the prophecy of, of the fall of Jerusalem. Everything that Jesus predicted, everything Jesus said is absolutely true. Are you going to trust it? John Calvin made a great point from this passage of Scripture. He said this, From this passage we draw a useful doctrine that our salvation because it is founded upon the promises of Christ, does not fluctuate according to the various trials and pains of this world, but remains unshaken. Why? Because our faith is in Christ himself, who ascended above the earth and is seated in heaven. Because his word's always true, our salvation does not fluctuate. It does not go up and down. We don't lose our salvation. We, we remain unshaken. Why? Because Jesus' words last forever. From first to last, every word of Jesus proves true. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. What a great verse to memorize. Every word of God proves true. Every word of it. Every single word of God proves true. And he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus' words will endure forever. So that's truth number one. Jesus wants to remind us, listen, all these prophecies that he's making, all these statements that he's making, we may not fully understand how it's all going to unfold, but one thing we can trust is his word's going to last forever. And how are we going to respond to that word? Are you going to trust that word? Are you going to live under the authority of that word? Are you going to believe that word? His words last forever. Now, let's explore the second truth this morning. And there's a little bit more information on this. We see this in verses 34 through 36. And I've worded this specifically the way I've worded it. Keep a close watch on yourself as you watch for the return of Christ. I have the word watch in there twice. Sean, are you being redundant on purpose? Yes, I am. Keep a close watch on yourself as you watch for the return of Christ. Listen to the commands that Jesus gives in this passage of Scripture. What does he say there? He says, stay awake in verse 36. Verse 34, watch yourself. Pay attention. Be careful. Stay awake. Pay attention to what? Be watchful for what? Well, obviously, he's talking about being watchful and waiting for the second coming of Christ. We know that. But as we watch for the second coming of Christ, Jesus says, you need to watch yourself. Keep a watch on yourself. Examine your life. Take inventory of where you are as you're waiting for the second coming. Because Jesus warns that that day will come like a trap. 
Verse 34, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day, what's the day? His second coming, the day of the Lord, come upon you suddenly like a trap. That word trap was used like a net to capture birds. There's this Old Testament imagery of being trapped by the day of the Lord. Amos 5, 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It's as if a man fled a lion and a bear met him. Or went into his house and leaned against his wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? It's like you're running away from lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, you're running away from a tiger and you turn around like, oh, there's a bear. Or you go into your house and you lean your hand on the wall and then a spider bites you. It comes quickly. The day of the Lord comes like a trap. Ecclesiastes 9.12 For the man does not know his time like fish that are taken into an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. For the unbelieving world, it will come like a trap. It will come suddenly. They will not be prepared. We will be prepared, but Jesus does say something in verse 34. Notice what he says. Watch yourselves. Original language, keep on continually watching yourself. And then notice how he ties it to your heart. Watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down. That's why during our time of confession earlier, I wanted us to think about our hearts. Guard your heart. Don't let your heart be, be weighed down. Watch your heart. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. NIV says, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart. New American Standard, watch over your heart with diligence. The idea here is that you need to make sure that your heart does not get weighed down, your heart does not get distracted, your heart does not get hardened. Actually, this was used of Pharaoh. The same word in the Old Testament was used of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Don't let your heart be hardened or dragged away or burdened down. And he gives two areas. The first is intoxication. Notice what he says there in verse 34. Watch yourselves lest your heart is weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Now that's, that's intoxication. Dissipation and drunkenness. Now we all know what drunkenness is, I think. But dissipation is a word we don't use a lot. And maybe your translation has a different word besides dissipation. Dissipation means this. It means you have no moral restraints. You indulge in explicitly, possibly, sexual sin because you're so intoxicated. In other words, it's unbridled indulgence. Actually, if you look at the original language, the word means having a hangover. Because you've run headlong into drinking and carousing and out-of-control behavior. Dissipation and drunkenness. Romans 13, 13-14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
to gratify its desires. Paul often uses this metaphor of clothing. Instead of putting on or clothing yourself with intoxication and sin and debauchery, he says, strip those things off of yourselves and instead put on Jesus. Look to Christ. Be ready for Jesus. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he's talking about physical drunkenness here, but I think it can lead to any type of behavior where you are intoxicated or you're out of control or there's no moral restraints. 1 Peter 4, 2-3. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For that time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless hydrology. So the first thing Jesus says is guard your heart from flagrant, outrageous, immoral sin. Dissipation and, dissipation and drunkenness. But the, notice the second thing he says. You may say, well, Pastor Sean, I'm not a flagrant drunk. I'm glad you're not. But look, notice what Jesus says secondly there. The cares of this life. Jesus addresses both blatant sin, flagrant rebellion, but he also says, you know what? You can just be distracted by the things of this life. Your heart can be drawn away to the things of this life. And those may be good things, but they draw your heart away from devotion to Christ. Do you remember the parable of the soils that Jesus told earlier? Remember the third soil, what happened to the third soil? People hear the word of the gospel, they hear the word of Christ, they get excited, but listen to what happens to the third soil in Luke 8, 14. As for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Your heart is drawn away to just the cares of this life. So instead of waiting for Christ to return, instead of living a life glorifying Christ, you're just drawn away to all the cares of the world. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need to care about things in this world. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have um, priorities that, that, are, that, are, that are earthly. But Jesus addresses two big areas, flagrant, sexual, alcoholic debauchery, the big things, outrageous, and then just the basic cares of this world. Here's the point. You can be intoxicated by anything that draws your heart away from Jesus. You can be intoxicated by video games. You can be intoxicated by TV shows, news feeds, a sport, a hobby, anything that is overwhelmingly drawing your heart away from Christ and you're giving your heart to that thing. It's not wrong to have, there's some morally neutral things. I'm not against video games. I'm not against watching TV. I'm not against sports. Those are morally neutral things. But when you give your heart to those things in an excessive way, you're being drawn away from devotion to Christ. And so Jesus says, you've got to watch over your heart. Stay awake over your heart. Your heart's going to draw. Your heart's going to want to be drawn to these things. Stay awake. You've got to be constant. So verse 34, he says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down. Look at verse 36. Stay awake at all times, praying that you have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place. Stay awake. 
Watch your heart and also stay awake. Now, how do you stay awake, Jesus says? Prayer. You're praying fervently for strength. You're praying for strength to be able to stand. You're praying for strength in this Christian life. You're praying. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Here's the bottom line. Jesus says the best way for you to be prepared for a second coming is in two areas. Your holiness of life and your prayer life. Are you a holy person of Christian character and are you prayerful? Are you guarding your heart and are you watching? You know, Peter combines these two truths that we've seen this morning. The earth just being destroyed. How you ought to live in light of that. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. See if this doesn't sound familiar. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you ought to be? Okay, that's a good question. What type of people ought you to be? Lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Heaven and earth will pass away. They'll, they'll melt away. They'll be burned away, but God's word stands forever. And in light of what's going to happen, what type of people ought we to be? Peter says, holy and godly people. Now, I don't want us to get the cart before the horse. Because up to this point, Jesus has been giving us commands on how we are to live as we wait for his return. And there's an assumption of Jesus and an assumption that the Bible makes. The only way you can do this is if you're saved by grace, by grace alone. You can't live for obedience without being saved. You can't obey these commands unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're not saved by your obedience. You're not saved by your holy living. You're not saved by all these things that you can do because that's impossible. If we're saved by something we can do or continue to do or remain faithful, we'll always come up short. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But Jesus leaves the most important thing for the very last thing he says. Jesus gets to the end of his sermon. And what's the last thing he says? He asks a question. Sort of a question. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And what's the last thing he says? To stand before the Son of Man. That's the ultimate question. How do you stand before the glorious Christ who's coming back? And that language that's used there, stand, is courtroom language. How do you stand before God's bar of judgment on that day? Will you be innocent before God as the judge? Will you be not guilty? Or will you be guilty? 
the ultimate question. How do you stand? On that day, when Christ comes back, how are you able to stand before him in the legal courtroom? Guilty or not? The only way you can stand before a holy God is by justification, by faith alone. That is the bedrock of Christianity. Romans 3, 23-24 talks about what it means to be justified. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So how can you stand? You have to be justified. That word justified comes from the banking world and it comes from the legal world. It comes from courtroom language. It comes from banking language. So let me give you an illustration of what this word means. I've given this numerous times, but maybe you're new to Emmanuel and you've never heard this before. Picture your life as a bank account. And your life is negative gazillion dollars of debt because of your sin. And God the judge looks down upon your life and what does he see in your spiritual bank account? He sees a negative balance. And the only legal verdict that God can render upon your life is guilty. You are guilty, guilty, guilty as charged because you have a negative balance. So something has to happen to your bank account, your spiritual bank account. You got to get rid of that negative balance. You can't do it. That balance has to be taken or transferred out of your account and transferred to somebody else's. Well, guess what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He takes your balance out of your account and transfers it to his account. Jesus takes that sin. Jesus credits that sin to himself. Now, what's your, what's your status now? What's your bank account now? Zero. Woohoo! I'm out of debt, but is zero good? <laughs> you want to be out of debt, but you want to have something, right? Well, you can't produce a positive balance. Zero's good, but it gets you back to zero. What you need is you need, you need a positive balance. So it goes the other way. Your sin goes out of your account to Jesus, but guess what comes in? His perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience goes into your account. And now, what does your life look like? It's not your negative balance. It's not zero. It's Christ. And what can God the judge do now that he looks at your life? He can say, not guilty, because I see Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And that's a permanent position. That secures your standing forever before a holy God. God can declare you righteous. Philippians 3.9 says this, Be found in Him, not having a righteous of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So how do you get this righteous standing? It's through faith. Faith is a resting and receiving the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Sometimes we focus in the Christian life more on our faithfulness rather than faith. Let me give you, let me, let me give you the difference here. Have you ever heard people say things like this? I don't know if I have enough faith. I wish I was just more faithful. I wish I was more on fire for Jesus. I wish I, had, I, wish I was more spiritual. I wish I had more faith. Those are words that talk about what you produce in your faithfulness. That's not faith. That's your faithfulness. 
Sometimes we think of faith as like a substance that you can measure, that you've got to have more of. No, faith is merely a resting and receiving Christ in his finished work. You may have very, very weak faith and still be justified. You're not justified based upon the level of your faith, the intensity of your faith, or the amount of your faith. You're justified on the basis of Christ. So let me give you an example. I want you to picture two bridges in your mind that go across a canyon. The first is an old rickety bridge that looks like it can kind of hold you up. And you're looking at this rickety bridge, and you're kind of scared of heights, like I am. And you come across the rickety bridge, and you're like, I can, I can cross that. So you step out all proud, and like, I have faith I can walk across that bridge. I'm going to strut out there and walk across it. Okay, picture the second bridge. You're still afraid of heights, but the second bridge is a concrete bridge that goes all the way across, and you just walk out on it, and you're a little fearful, but you know that bridge is going to hold you up. Okay, in the first illustration, who's the confident one? You're confident in yourself. I can walk out there. The second one, what are you confident in? The bridge. It's not your faith that saves you. It is Christ who saves you. It's not how much faith you have. It's the object of your faith. And our faith is in Christ. And so based upon the righteousness, objective work of Jesus Christ, he can declare you not guilty because of Christ. So how do you stand before a holy God when he comes back on that final day? Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 133-4. If you, Lord, kept a record of wrong, who could stand? Answer, nobody. But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. If the Lord kept a record of all of our sins, past, present, future, thought, word, and deed, we would be utterly hopeless, helpless, and hellbound. We could not stand. We would be toast. But with the Lord, there's forgiveness. So how do you stand on that final day? You stand on a righteousness that comes from outside of you through Christ, not something you produce on the inside of you. We need the righteousness of Christ credited to us, imputed to us, debited to us, whatever type of accounting word you want to use, we need to be clothed in his righteousness alone to be able to stand on that final day. And that comes through faith in Christ. And you can have weak faith this morning. It's not the intensity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And once you trust in Christ, God the Father forever declares you not guilty. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, what? All other ground is sinking sand. Okay, do you know what the last verse says? When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When Christ comes back with trumpet stand, sound, what will you be standing on? Will you be standing on your good works? 
Will you be standing on your religion? Will you be standing on your failed attempts at righteousness? Will you stand on your resume? Will you stand on anything that you can produce? If you're standing on any of those things, it's sinking sand. You will sink at the second coming of Christ. The only way to stand is on the solid rock, Jesus Christ. So may we be ready for the second coming of Christ. And may we be able to stand on that day because we trusted in Christ alone as our only hope. And He is our solid rock. And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, you come to the Lord's table with joy. You come to the Lord's table with confidence. You come to the Lord's table with assurance because it's nothing that you've produced. It's all what Christ has done for you. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we are admitting publicly, we're professing publicly that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking stand. So let's take the Lord's Supper this morning with joy, with assurance, with confidence because we, we have a risen Savior, Christ the Lord. Let me ask you to bow your heads and get prepared to take our Lord's Supper this morning. Lord, my prayer is that every single person in this room today knows in their heart of hearts that they are able to stand before you on that final day. Lord, let them not wait until that final day when it's too late, but Lord, let them nail it down this morning. If there's somebody in this room that hasn't trusted you, their bank account is is a million dollars in the debt and, and they need that righteousness of Christ, Lord, would today be the day that they would trust in you alone for salvation? Lord, we want to be ready. We want to guard our hearts. We don't want to be caught up in the cares of this world Lord, we don't want to be involved in all these things that would take our attention away from you. So Lord, help us to watch and be ready and be prepared. Help us to trust in your word that endures forever. Help us to realize we stand on Christ, the solid rock. All the ground is sinking sand. Let me ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.